Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to go into Period 6, The Rise of Industrial America. Here we go. So before we kind of dive into all of the um, the benefits and the issues uh, that come with industrialization, we got to kind of talk about the environment or the factors that contributed to America's growth. Um, these are the things and the circumstances that surrounded the United States in the 1860s all the way to the 1900s. The first one we're going to discuss is raw materials. There's going to be a rich abundance of iron ore, coal, copper, timber, and oil that will be available as a result of technology that could be excavating or extracting them from land that was previously viewed as unmanageable or unvaluable. At the same time, we also have an incredible amount of eager people to join the workforce. Labor provided largely from the waves of immigrants that are coming uh, into our country after the Civil War. And the urban centers that are being created provides a large amount of low-cost labor for all these business owners, and that plays a huge role in the increase of industrial America. Another factor is capital, which could be kind of uh, defined as um, money that is that could be invested into a venture. And of course, this will be provided by domestic and foreign investors uh, as a result of robust uh, institutions such as the banking institution that we will see be rejuvenated as a result of the Civil War. Now, technology also plays a crucial role because one of the most important things is at this moment we have things uh, that previously were very expensive to uh, create, just like we saw the cotton gin uh, make the technological advancement there, making slavery more dependent on our country because of the efficiency of cotton uh, into textiles. Now we see the cost of production being cheaper and more efficient in so many different ways. And to add on to that, you might want to, to note that because technology makes things uh, cheaper and more efficient to use, um, there's going to be more of a reliance on unskilled workers as uh, juxtaposed with skilled workers prior to industrialization. This will have a big major impact on labor relations that we'll discuss later. Yes, and um, generally when you look at this time period on the whole, businesses could rely on friendly governmental policies and if there was any regulation that would be favorable to them. Uh, but most cases, there would be policies that would give them an advantage, a jump start, a head start in certain sectors uh, to encourage economic um, improvement in our country. This is our government's role in this era. And lastly, we can talk about the fact that there were many talented entrepreneurs that took advantage of opportunities they were given, that you exploited the window of opportunity that they had, and really made the right decisions and we're in the right place at the right time 
to take full advantage and become extraordinarily wealthy thanks to their skills, but also for the opportunity they were given. And the first industry that we're going to kind of look into is the railroad industry, because like any other type of economic epoch or era, there will be some sort of industry or product that will revolutionize not only the economy, but also society in general. Like the smartphone that we experience today, it has well, an impact on jobs as well as education and other type of associated industries that help support the arrival of smartphone. Railroads are also going to emerge in the 19th century and have a huge impact on society. Railroad mileage will increase from 35,000 miles in 1865 to 193,000 miles in 1900. That's almost, uh, that's actually more than four times the amount of track within less than 40 years. And with the rise in these industries and factories uh, being able to mass produce, one of the things that encouraged that was the fact that now the markets were not local, the markets were national. And the railroads is what connected all of that, right? So when you have these markets that New York is not just serving the tri-state area, but New York is serving the entire country with right. the factories, you the railroads are what made that possible, right? So mass production is great, but the ability to send all of these products to where they need to go uh, is really what the economy was all about. And this led to economic specialization, where you could have one product that was your, you were going to make the best in the entire country, and you didn't have to compete with any anyone else, and you could get it to everywhere that you needed to be. If you want a nice medical metaphor to kind of help assist your understanding in this, think of the railroad industry as the heart, and the miles and miles of tracks as the veins or the arteries that give lifeblood to the entire nation, economically speaking. It also is going to affect cultural life. Like I mentioned before, the smartphone is going to affect our cultural life. American railroads will do the same thing. American Railroad Association will divide the country into four time zones in 1883. Why? To keep up with that mass production and that demand and make sure that all railroad time will become standard for all Americans so they can rely on these transportations. Now, one of the other things that is really important is that these industries that are in their early infant stages, the coal, oil, and steel industries, become reliant on railroads, and it really helps promote them because now they're relying on them shipping their goods all throughout the Northeast. Um, you know, instead of being able to just be uh, local and have to rely on local transportation, the, the railroads really connected the country. And so this really uh, emerges in where you see the creation of modern stockholding corporations, is that they're developing into these large corporations that now have uh, thousands of owners within the stock market, and now you have issues with um, structures such as finance, business management, and the regulation of competition all become an intricate web that is part of this new banking infrastructure, largely because of the emergence of the big business of railroads, and that there was needed, uh, they needed the financing for this, and this is what was provided for it. Um, so we're going to kind of divide the industry into two big geographical sections, one east and then one in the west. When the railroad industry starts to develop in the east, the primary goal, of course, will be standardizing and connecting local lines. From 1830, there has always been railroad tracks. In fact, Abraham Lincoln utilized them during the Civil War to kind of get supplies from the Union all the way down to the south. But a lot of these local lines needed to be integrated or standardized and merge them into a trunk line or a major line that will head towards a major city. In 1867, a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, the same person that you probably 
think about when you think of the Vanderbilt Museum, will use profits from the steamboat, uh, steamboat business to merge local lines along the New York State Central Railroad. He will run the New York City line to Chicago, and he will operate more than 4,500 miles of tracks. Other trunk lines will develop in Baltimore, Ohio, and the Pennsylvania Railroad connected eastern seaports with Chicago to other western cities. So right off the bat, we have people that are making money simply by merging lines and making it more efficient and faster for these lines to continue to be used. One of the things Cornelius Vanderbilt is most known for is he ends up creating and building largely on his own, in his own idea, Grand Central Station in Manhattan. And the idea of connecting the entire East Coast in one central station was crucial to the efficiency you mentioned. Now, we talk about the railroad industry in the West. A lot of it had to do with encouraging more um, railroad companies to work there. And promoting settlement on the Great Plains was really important because we wanted to link the nation to create one national market that we mentioned before. So because of this, largely the federal government would make the effort to provide loans and land grants where we're giving lands to these railroad companies in order to assist them in their expansion, knowing that by helping the railroad industry, in turn, in the long run, they'd be investing in our overall economy. All right. So when you give over 170 million acres of public land to 80 different companies, you're giving so much land to businesses and to corporations. The Homestead Act, which is one of the biggest land giveaways to the general public, this was not nearly as large. It was three times as much land than the Homestead Act provided to these people. So one of the things is that the government would expect that these companies would be doing things for the general welfare of the, of the uh, communities in these areas. And they were hoping that they would sell the land back to the public to help finance construction of the railroad, raise the value of the public land and provide this transportation for not just mail but also federal troops. It was a win-win that they would get something for it in giving that to them. But the problem is whenever you give a large amount of money for one cause and you don't have sufficient oversight and making sure that it's all going to the places it's to be, uh, supposed to be, often it can lead to some corruption. And there are always people that will take advantage of this. So some of the things where people would get these loans, get these grants, quickly build these railroads, but it was poor or hasty construction in doing that, and therefore the many of them would break down. It was not reliable. Um, many of these situations also led to politicians having cash available to them and therefore businessmen and contractors would know that they could work with them and in many ways they would take more money than they needed for their service without any accountability. So one of the things we learned from this era is when you give too much money or you throw too much money at a problem without proper oversight from the government, uh, there's always going to be people there to take advantage and there will be fraud and corruption. Most publicly, you have the credit mobilier scandal during Grant's administration. We mentioned it re briefly, but this is where bribery, extortion, and patronage or loyalty are rewarded in a negative sense. Um, and so when people start to be aware of this, we start to see protests um, and people start to realize the railroad companies have more land than anybody else. And in many ways, in these Western states, they have more than half the land. And that becomes a problem. The American people start to realize that this is not a system that they agree with. So this is where the transcontinental railroads come into play. Yeah, the two railroad companies will divide the task to connect the nation together. And it's going to, of course, be helped with the cooperation and assistance of the federal government, as said before by, by Mr. Copeland. So one company called the Union Pacific will be responsible for building the track from east to west. From Omaha and Nebraska across the Great Plains, it will mostly employ Irish immigrants. The second company, the Central Pacific, will build the line from west to east, from Sacramento, California, across the Sierra Mountains, and they will be employing mostly Chinese immigrants. By 1869, both companies, of course, will join tracks at Promontory Point, Utah. 
1893, of course, we all have this tendency to think that was just one giant transcontinental railroad. There were other lines that are going to be completed, one from the southern Pacific connecting New Orleans to Los Angeles, one from the northern Pacific that will connect Duluth to Seattle, one from Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, Kansas City to Los Angeles. And by 1893, there will be another company that will make a line from St. Paul to Seattle. So we have this tendency to think it's just one giant project. There are going to be other several types of transcontinental railroads kind of to connect to the main artery of the project made by the Union and the Central Pacific. So one of the important elements of the railroad is that they're all having to fight specifically for customers, right? So competition, collaboration, and consolidation are all part of this. And social Darwinism is the overlying uh, ideology about this, is that the major business practice is this idea of survival of the fittest. We need to be the most efficient in order to survive. So the competition often would be a competition for who could get the most customers. So in order to encourage more people to ship on their railroad, they would offer rebates to some of the largest um, corporations or largest businesses or kickbacks to them if they were such a frequent customer. Um, whereas if you're a very small farmer, you'd be charged some of the highest rates. You wouldn't have the ability to get that major discount that some of the bigger companies would get. Um, collaboration would be where multiple uh, railroads realize rather than fight over co- customers, why don't we agree to have the same rates and the same, um, you know, like concept of prices this way we can all enjoy the same amount of customers and it would be forming things like pools, which are basically informal agreements. And then one of the important things that happens towards the end of the 1800s is this concept of consolidation. After the Panic of 1893, you see that there's so many railroad companies that go into bankruptcy that some bankers, specifically J.P. Morgan, they view this as a great opportunity. So they take control of a lot of the failing companies buy them out and consolidate them into make uh, make sure that the overall market is much more stabilized in price and they reduce the overall debt. So by the turn of the century in 1900, there's only seven giant systems that control two-thirds of the nation's railroads. And it's usually only a few powerful men that dominate these boards that control all of the competing railroad corporations through these interlocking directorates. You also understand the significance of that. If only a few people control two-thirds of the nation's railroad system, they're going to have a significant influence not only on the prices that they charge for transporting people, but also the government. Because in a way, the government is also going to be a customer to some of these railroad lines. And they're going to probably be at the behest of these interlocking directorates. So we have to be very cognizant of the rise of producers uh, when compared to uh, government's role in all of this emergent um, economy, complex economy. The steel industry, of course, is going to be an associated industry that will help assist and aid and support the railroad industry. By 1850s, we have people like Henry Bessemer and William Kenry that will be discovering a new process of quickly making steel in England that will be known as the Bessemer process. It's basically heating iron and blasting oxygen into the the liquid molten uh, iron pot, which will make an alloy known as steel. The two resources, of course, needed for that are coal and iron. Coal reserves will be discovered in the Great Lakes region. Iron ore reserves will be discovered in the Mesabi region in Minnesota. A man named Andrew Carnegie will be emerging as a leading, quote, captain of industry for the steel industry. He'll be born in Scotland in 1835. It's really a rags-to-riches story working through the ranks of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. And by 1870, he'll start manufacturing steel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He will outdistance his comp- comp- uh, competitors through remarkable salesmanship and a uh, new form of business method. This method, of course, is designed and called vertical integration. 
basically what vertical integration is, owning all of the supplies necessary uh, to make whatever product or service you're using. So in Carnegie's case, in order to sell cheap steel, he had to kind of eliminate the middleman of all the suppliers that he would have to deal with in order to make steel. So Carnegie will soon own iron ore uh, mines. He will own coal mines. And because of that, and all the transportation and shipping uh, will be owned by him as well, he wouldn't have to rely on these suppliers. And that will that will make him kind of be able to slash his prices um, that would kind of outcompete all of the other type of steel All factories. the profit goes directly to him and right. his business rather than having to pay all those right. different services. So. This will sustain dominance, um, and Carnegie will, of course, by 1900's turn of century, his empire will be worth more than $400 million. Uh, and he will sell it, uh, U.S. Sale, steel, to a man named J.P. Morgan, who's going to be a big, big proponent and big figure in the banking industry. And it'll be the first billion-dollar company and the largest enterprise in the world. Of course, the benefits of this will employing 168,000 people and control more than three-fifths of the nation's steel business. However, although that is a great, a great opportunity to employ a vast amount of people, we will learn and discuss how some of these people are going to be exploited. That's right. And um, one of the other crucial um, industries that emerges is the oil industry. And just like the railroad industry, it is something that relies on the natural resources of um, the United States but um, exploits them in a different way. So you have 1859, Edwin Drake is really one of the first people to discover oil in Pennsylvania. And shortly after that in 63 is when John D. Rockefeller founds his own company. And what this does is he eventually will be the nation's oil refinery that would control almost all of the oil industry, largely because of his philosophy in eliminating competition. So this is called horizontal integration. So it's different than vertical. Rather than worrying about your individual process, it's really just looking side to side and seeing all your competitors and making sure that you eliminate them as possible as quickly as possible. How did he do this? By drastically cutting prices in a large um, in a large part because of the fact that he was able to buy things and to own so much oil that he would be able to sustain a short-term hit to the profit margins because he would be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, he would be able to um, drive out the smaller companies because they wouldn't be able to last as long. Um, basically, instead of charging $50 for a, bar a barrel of oil, he would cut it down all the way to $20. That would completely take away the profits of the smaller business. Eventually, they would not be able to last as long. And then quickly, when they were on the verge of bankruptcy, he would offer them a buyout. And so this would happen over and over and over again. In addition to this, one of the things he offered frequently was the railroads that were um, the railroads that he was shipping all of his oil on, he would guarantee them a minimum of 50 um, railroad cars a day filled on their railroad system. A lot of traffic, a lot of payment, as long as they offered him rebates. Basically saying, I can go somewhere else with my business if you're not willing to give me this discount on a larger scale. So all these other companies, the largest cost that they have, all of his competitors, the largest cost is always shipping. So with the scale in which he was able to ship and negotiate these rebates, that was a major advantage for him. So in 1881, we find his company to become known as the Standard Oil Trust. And at this moment, he controls over 90% of the oil refinery business. And he made this up by basically consolidating many other companies and merging them under single corporate umbrellas rather than allowing them to be associated with the concept of a monopoly. 
At his retirement, he was known as one of the wealthiest men to ever walk the earth. His uh, wealth was at an estimated $900 million. And his goal was to always offer oil at the cheapest possible price to the most amount of people. And that's one of the things that he believed in. So he uh, was able to keep this price relatively low because he was reducing waste in his production. Of course, at some point, with the rise of all these entrepreneurs in their key respective industries, there's going to be some sort of antitrust movement that will be established. In other words, uh, allowing the government to kind of intervene and play referee. A lot of middle-class citizens will fear unchecked power for these industries, and they'll pressure their local senators or congressmen to do something about that. Also, they're also going to resent the fact that the um, these new people are going to represent the new wealth. Um, old wealth can be defined as... Um, maintaining and holding, uh, you know, your your wealth through property. New wealth is going to be based on capital, and there's going to be a resentment between these two new emerging classes. In 1890, after several attempted attempts to curb industrialist power on a state level, the public will eventually pressure the federal government to pass the first uh, antitrust act, known as the Anti-Sherman Trust Act. Of course, this is a law with very vague language, and because of its vague language, the courts were able to interpret um, trusts to be actually unions and actually helped protect some of these trusts. We will learn how the Anti-Sherman Trust Act will come into play later on in the Progressive Era, but again, this is the, the first found, found, foundational uh, parts or aspects of the government trying to rein in some of this unfettered capitalism that we see is beginning to hurt some of the consumers and laborers, of course. And one of the principles that is really um, a huge part of the philosophy of economists in this era is laissez-faire capitalism. So it starts in 1776, and we look backwards at mercantilism as the prior um, economic system. Capitalism believed in what Adam Smith argued in The Wealth of Nations was that businesses should be allowed to exist naturally, that if government regulation got in, it would interfere with what we called and what he called the invisible hand of the market, that the forces of supply and demand would naturally set prices where they need to be, and that the businesses that would offer the best services would be the ones that are rewarded and offer quality services and goods at a low cost, those are the ones that are going to benefit at the long term. So this type of philosophy is what many businessmen benefited off of during this era. But at the same time, we also have this philosophy of social Darwinism, which is kind of um, justification for the way in which things are and that there shouldn't be an effort to ever change them and that it was used to establish that the economic uh, economics of government intervention could be more harmful than it would be helpful. So Charles Darwin obviously creating the theory of evolution, but based on biological species that are surviving because of their flexibility and their ability to change over generations, over thousands of years. And those that don't change, that don't adapt, they'll die. And so one of the problems is that we see this infiltrating economic thought. And when you apply a thousand year theory to the economics and the politics of our lifetimes of 30, 40, and 50 years, you start to see this argument that any government interference would do much more harm than it would be good. And this is something that Professor William Graham Sumner would argue, that anyone indicating that this um, differentiation or um, gap between rich and poor is something that needs to change and that helping the poor, he, he argued that that's a problem because helping the poor would be misguided, that it would weaken the evolution of our human species, and that preserving the unfit would be a negative thought. 
all right? This would be something that would in turn hurt us for generations to come. And this is really the scientific justification for racial intolerance that we see with colonization all over the world, now applied to economics. And it's applied to the sense of there's um, superiority within the upper classes and there's weakness at the bottom. And nobody at the bottom is redeemable. Now, while some of these captains of industry or entrepreneurs that dominated these key industries may not have went as far as promoting social Darwinism, they are also going to have their own justifications for keeping their power. And, and all of that collectively will be known. These justifications or arguments are known as the gospel of wealth. John D. Rockefeller will justify his economic success through religion. He's going to really insist that the Protestant work ethic, he's going to insist that God gave him riches. Reverend Russell Cromwell will back that and support that and preach to everyone that everyone has a duty to be rich. Of course, Andrew Carnegie will argue in his article Wealth that the rich have a God-given responsibility to carry out and pro uh, projects of civic philanthropy for the benefits of society. So one hand is justifying that they are somehow uniquely special and somehow there is some sort of divine or ordination that is involved with their economic success. And the second aspect of gospel of wealth is, well, because they're special, they have a God-given uh, obligation to help out those people in need. So while it does sound really nice and charity, of course, is always accepted by those who need it, it was not going to be very effective because it operates on a few assumptions. One, the assumption is that these rich people will actually do the things in which Carnegie actually did. Mm -hmm. The second assumption is even if they were doing it, the allocation of funds might not be enough or practical to meet the divergent needs of a growing disproportionate amount of people in the working class. You were th talking about a system that needs to be changed with respect to the barriers that stop people from moving up the ranks. And what makes it very difficult to kind of help these people is people like Andrew Carnegie, the people that were in those social class systems and they were able to kind of build themselves on the bootstraps and they're part of that rags to riches story. And while it is very commendable that Andrew Carnegie was able to do this, he is not representative of the entire population. He did not acknowledge that there was a bit of luck and there was other types of opportunities that were given to him to do that. And, and again, that is not to trivialize his hard work. It's just that not everyone has the opportunity to have this. Yeah, and, and if it was simply hard work and if it was simply <clears throat> intelligence right. and it was a simple equation that if you do this, this, and this, right. you'd be a billionaire like he was, more people would be billionaires. Right. You know, there is an element of luck and being there at the right place at the right time, which he, although... Like we said, he walked the walk besides the talk that he gave in his wealth and uh, his gospel of wealth. He gave very generously back to the public. There was that era of um, that air of superiority in which he gave it, saying, "I am the one who should be determining since I earned all this money who gets it and where they get it." Because, as we said, giving it to all of them wouldn't be worth it. All right. So as we see evolution of the markets, one of the major contributing factors is technology and m incredible inventions led to large advancements in very different fields. First of all, we have communication. So Samuel F.B. Morse, from, uh, named after Morse code, of course develops the electronic communication by the telegraph, which is crucial to the advancement, and this starts in 1844, but this is the beginning of telecommunications, which really modif uh, modify and rapidly expedite uh, workforces and their ability to get things done. All right, Cyrus W. Field develops the transatlantic cable now, 
Europe and America can talk by 1900. We've linked all the continents of the world. And this is something that communication, rather than having to wait for a ship to travel over the course of weeks, is something that is speed and time is money. And that's what's most important. It makes us all more efficient. All right, we have uh, the typewriter developed in 67. Alexander Graham Bell develops the telephone, cast register, calculating machine, adding machine. All of these things help make every single business more effective in what they're doing and more efficient in what they're doing. So communications technology have a huge, huge effect in the international marketplace. Um, we also have situations like the fountain pen, the Kodak camera that you'd be familiar with, and King Gillette. That's why the name of the corporation Gillette is still around, who developed the razor and the razor blade later at the turn of the century. And like what's happening in the oil industry and the steel industry and the railroad industry, there's a lot of fierce competition. You're going to see that also in the technological industry and the communications industry as well. And the best uh, you know, example of this is um, the war of currents that was waged between Thomas Edison and his protege, Nikola Tesla. In 1869, Thomas Edison will patent his first invention of recording votes. And because of this and the success, Edison will get the idea in 76 to establish a research laboratory, the first in its, its ever like conception in Manello Park, New Jersey. It will be the first modern research laboratory. It will be focused on collective versus individual research and innovation. So many ways, uh, the railroad industries are pooling again their resources and collaborating to fix prices to benefit them. Thomas Edison is pooling all the intellectual minds of the era to kind of help uh, you know, benefit him as well. So because of this, his laboratory will be one of the leading uh, uh, corporations to create the phonograph, the improvement of the incandescent lamp, the motion picture camera, as well as the mimeograph machine. And of course, during this large list of success, he's going to hire a lot of people, many of which were immigrants. One will be a Croatian immigrant named Nikola Tesla to be part of this research group. At first, Tesla will work side by side by Edison and develop products. But then again, eventually, the two minds will kind of start disputing and Tesla will leave over that. He's going to begin to develop a new method of directing electrical current that will reach the ire of Edison. And before you know it, there's going to be a competition of who will promote a better form of, um, you know, transporting or assisting the transportation of electricity. For Edison, he's going to develop a uh, method known as direct current and Tesla will develop an alternate current known as AC. Some of you probably already know the band ACDC. This is where it comes from, the war of the currents. The question that starts the war, what will America be powered by? DC, of course, has the benefit of being powerful, but it's incapable of reaching long distances because the way it's which it's designed. AC currents, of course, can travel long distances with tremendous power. So at the time, it seemed that AC was going to win. However, Edison is going to go on huge smear campaign against Tesla's method. And one of the biggest reasons of doing this is he's going to fear that he will lose investors to Tesla. So this is an example where the um, greed is what kind of stops what is most effective in our country. And, and you also have to think about it, it's like his life's work. Right. All Everything he'd worked for, this is his great opportunity, and now he's going to see one of his protégés take advantage of uh, one of the weaknesses in what he created. So he wasn't going to allow Tesla to have what he had worked so hard for. And that's, I think, huge. 
uh, sentiment within a lot of competitive businessmen in this era. And that's a perfect example. And uh, one way in which he can demonstrate the danger of AC is by actually electrocuting an elephant. And of course, the world, Chicago World's Fair, uh, this will later inspire some people to develop that type of aspect and uh, create the electric chair that will be instituted in New York State. So because of Edison's, uh, I guess, demonstration of the power of the AC, people are going to use that and actually apply it to uh, state offenders and people that break the law uh, throughout the uh, 19th, 20th century. Um, of course, eventually the AC will, quote, win the war. I say that because people still use DC today. Companies will inevitably be more attractive to its efficiency. Tesla will get support from another man that kind of took the same model of Edison by kind of pooling all the intellectual minds of the time, George Westinghouse. Westinghouse will, of course, back Tesla up, and he will be responsible for other products with the help of the minds like Tesla, uh, like the air brake and the electric transformer. Um, they will help power streetcars, subways, and electric powered machinery. So again, this is a nice example of how even in the technological industry, you might see competition, uh, cutthroat uh, competition uh, reach its way into America's uh, war of currents. Um, the second topic that we want to talk about is market consumer goods. Now, when we think about industrialization, we always think immediately about massive production in these factories. And the mass production of goods is really important. But in order to, you know, basically justify all of that, you need people to be buying things in massive quantities. So one of the things that's is a change, or a change in our culture is really the behavior of general consumers. And in the past, we had people only buying enough of what they needed. And now we start to see the emergence of advertisements and other things encouraging the culture of America to be more of consumers. So we have large department stores that start to emerge. Macy's, the department store that we have the um, Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City, is established during this era. Marshall Field Store is established in Chicago. Frank Woolworth's is a five and ten cent store where all across the country you have these five and ten cent stores where anybody can go in and get what they need. And one of the things that you start to see is that not everybody lives in urban areas. So one of the ways they do to meet the needs of people in rural areas is they create what's known as mail order companies. So um, they deliver products to rural customers. Some of these organizations early on are Sears, Roebuck, and Montgomery Ward. Some of them are still around today, but Sears being the number one. But uh, packaged food now changes in terms of for the first time we see people being able to package food and eat it later, and it changes eating habits. Instead of always having to buy food immediately fresh, the emergence of things like the refrigerator make it possible later on. Um, the, this impact of the mass production of consumer goods plays a major role in the way in which our culture is developed over the next 30, 40 years. So what are the results of industrialization? We talked a little bit briefly on it. We're going to get more into it. Well, the first impact, of course, is a concentration of wealth. By the 1880s, the richest 10% of the U.S. population will control 90% of the nation's wealth. Uh, and industrialization will, of course, create a new class of millionaires at the expense of a lot more people in abject poverty and unable to make it out of that. And what also helps create and keep these people um, in line is this cultural phenomenon known as the Horatio Alger myth. It is this belief that many Americans are going to have belief. And it's not just for rich people that believe this. this. is going to be also working class people that will believe it. It's basically the understanding that there is a possibility to rise and build yourselves on your bootstraps, for go from rags to riches, help yourself up, uh, initiate the American dream. Anyone can enjoy the social mobility through honest, hard work, and just a little luck. 
This will be backed by belief by citing the trajectories of Carnegie and Edison, who came from uh, poor uh, origins. So, but one of the things that we talked about earlier this week is really the thought process of, yes, that's what everyone believes, but then when this, this error starts to also be the realization that many, many people, the reality is that movement into just a little bit of a better life is very, very rare and very, right. very difficult. And especially in this era of mass production and business success is that the people taking advantage of it, and many of the people that have the ability to do this, meaning they have the capital to invest in these type of business ventures. So you already have to be somebody who's affluent to a sense of upper middle class at the least, because you have the uh, spare money that you can invest that you don't need to feed your family and, to, and you're not living paycheck to paycheck. So with 90% of America controlling only 10% of the wealth, you also have to look at the very, very small percentage of the wealth that is being um, delivered to and given to uh, the wage earners in the factories. And this vast inequality that we see develop um, does create this new era of middle class citizens for the first time. So in when you look at the overall inequality, the, the gap between the rich and the poor expands, but one of the things it does create is this new emerging middle class, and it expands for the first time in our history because these large corporations and these new industries, all of a sudden, you don't just have the business owners at the very top benefiting from it. There's a demand for what we call white-collar jobs, the office jobs, the paper workers, people that are doing highly organized administrative things, things like middle managers, accountants, keeping track of all the numbers, these clerical workers, even salespeople, selling things to uh, the consumer and encouraging them to buy, those are people that are considered white collar jobs. So, and because of this, these people also create this new era of the demand for new jobs and new services such as doctors, lawyers, public employees, storekeepers. The local business owner is also considered a middle class worker during this era. So in the past when you had only the wealthy, incredibly wealthy landowners and then the poor working class, now we see a growth in that gap but it's filled in a little bit by the middle class. And when we look at the very bottom, the wage earners that have always been there, the bottom two thirds of all Americans in 1900 are working for wages. And usually these jobs are brutal in not just their um, demands physically, but you're working at least 10 hours a day, six days a week. And just like laissez-faire economics and um, this concept of the invisible hand of the market sets the price of a, um, a, a good, the supply, the laws of supply and demand also will help determine wages. And this man, David Ricardo, would argue this iron law of wages, that there's no way for me to arbitrarily increase the wages of my workers in just in a vacuum. Because when there's an increased amount of people or influx of available workers, an increased labor force will require the wages to lower themselves because there's just too much of a supply of workers out there. I can't arbitrarily increase them. And then if I were to raise the wages, then eventually it would cause a break in this cycle. That would eventually lead to lower wages and then in the long-term starvation if we were to disrupt this. So just the natural forces of the economics of thousands of workers available to you, it's naturally going to lower the wages. Whereas if there's very few workers available to you, you need to increase your wages to um, create the demand for your job opportunities that you're trying to hire. So one of the things you see is real wages, income adjusted for inflation, they rose steadily throughout the late 19th century. And most wage earners, unfortunately though, could not support their families on one income. So this is where we start to see the working class depend on not just the income of women, but also the income of children. And by 1890, we have nearly 12 million families 
that average less than $380 a year in income from all of their sources. That is a, f- a variety of different things. And because of the economic reality of the situation, working women are now going to be demanded in the labor force. About one-fifth of women during this time period will be in the workforce. Most of these were going to be young and single. Only 5% of married women will work outside the home because of the cult of domesticity that we've mentioned in previous lectures. In 1900, men will believe that women's proper role will be raising a family, will be the pinnacle of society. Most working women will be in the textile, garment, and food processing industries, so not much change that has happened since the 1830s. However, there will be some clerical white-collar job that will become feminized, such as the secretary, bookkeepers, typists, telephone operators. What I mean by that is these jobs were typically done by males, and over time they're going to be associated with the particular gender of being a woman, and that's where we're getting these stereotypes that we'll talk about later in the 20th century. And largely because they're not positions of power. Their subservient positions. So that's why it works for them. Um, and this led to some labor discontent during this era. So before the Industrial Revolution, workers would have to labor in these small workplaces and they would always be skilled workers and they would be valued because they have something that could not be replaced. But we've mentioned this over and over again, that factories completely changed the paradigm here. The value of individual workers and the expectations of workers. It went from skilled work to unskilled work. And now you have this issue where you're having to work under the tyranny of the clock, so to say, where they're in more dangerous conditions. You must show up every day, punch in, punch out. And the mining, manufacturing of steel, all these different things, you have workers working under much more unhealthy conditions where they're exposed to chemicals and pollutants that largely create chronic illnesses and in some cases death. But the issue is the fact that because there's so um, there's a lack of value in any individual that if someone got sick, if somebody wasn't able to work, it wouldn't be a problem because of the um, huge supply of workers and the new immigrant forces coming in. So workers would typically be changing jobs on an average of every three years because it was very easy to lose your job. And roughly 20% of those who worked in factories would either have to quit or drop out of the workplace entirely because of something that would happen. And all these frustrations are not going to be well, like, heard or even like satisfied with the upper class because again if you're operating on the assumption of a laissez-faire or social darwinism or the gospel wealth um, it's their fault that they're not trying hard enough so if labor can't like talk to their bosses about kind of uh, addressing some of their concerns it's only natural for the laborers themselves to organize and this is where we're going to get the first development of um controversial unions. As we've discussed before, unions have been around since the 1830s, but generally were ignored and governments uh, basically passed laws to restrict their their existence. But as industrialization kind of waged on, there will be basically warfare between capital and labor. Some of the industrial warfare will kind of seed out with a variety of actions. Uh, Because capital will hold most power over laborers, they could, they could hire strike breakers or scabs. These are people that are not part of this union. That undermines the power of the union. They could issue a lockout, which is the closing of the factory to forestall labor organization. They can also issue a blacklist that basically puts all of the union leaders in a, on a list, and they notify other employers so they don't hire them. This can also undermine the development of a union. They can also do what was known to be known as called uh, the yellow dog contracts. These are contracts prohibiting workers from joining a union. Um, once side, this is legally binding and could be brought to a court in which the court would enforce next to the government. Of course, there are other methods of stopping unions if those other efforts don't help. You can uh, use private guards or state militia to put down strikes. And of course, you can also go to the court in which they can order court injunctions, orders, or mandates against these strikes. 
another thing that's kind of going against the creation of organized labor is this cultural fear of unions. And the reason for that is because they're going to be seen as anarchistic and un-American. Keep in mind, the thoughts of Karl Marx uh, in 1848 are going to eventually wind its way to the United States. And because it's a foreign philosophy, and, and, and because a lot of these working class fellows are going to be from other countries, there's going to be an association between some sort of socialistic or communistic activity and unions. While some unions just really wanted better wages and working conditions, they're going to be mistaken, perhaps, for kind of launching a socialistic revolution that has been outlined in Karl Marx's manifesto. So there's a lot of obstacles that get in the way for unions and eventually unfortunately these obstacles and frustration will be met with violence between capital and labor the first great event that we will discuss is the great railroad strike of 1877 yeah so um with the railroad strike uh, strike that you mentioned it's really one of the worst outbreaks of labor conflict and one of these things that happened is, is during a depression late in the 1870s and we have a situation where the railroad companies in order to stay afloat cut wages drastically to reduce costs so there's a strike that starts in Baltimore and Ohio and originally it starts to spread all throughout um, the railroad company and it spreads across 11 states and initially the workers are successful in shutting down two-thirds of our entire uh, railroad track here in the country and shortly after that there's other workers that are joining their forces we have 500,000 employees from other industries that are striking in solidarity with them so here we have 1877 in first time since the 1830s we're having to deal with the issue of a strike and now Rutherford B Hayes is having to issue federal troops to end the violence. Now, one of the things that we see here is these people are not, um, you know, this is where we get the reputation where all these labor forces are associated with violence because of what happens here is that they're sending in federal troops to end it and they're forced and they're beaten by them and more than 100 people are killed. Some companies, the end result of this is that some companies realize, hey, we have been you know, our wages have been ridiculously low. Maybe we should raise them a little bit to avoid these things happening in the past. But other things, other companies take a much harder line, realizing that with the federal support, with the government support that they will send in troops or militia at the state level, we can take a hard line on these unions. And now we can prevent them from having any say in what goes and forward. And the reason why it's such a hard line, I mean, think about it. Two-thirds of the country's rail trackage is going to be stopped. Think about all of the associated industries that go along with the railroads. It's not the railroads themselves only that are getting hurt. It's the shipping industry. It's the it's the Sears and Reebok retail stores that rely on these shipments to sell their products to these people. You're talking about like in a complex economy, you're talking about several industries that are going to be hurt economically by everyone getting together and stopping, stop working. I mean, you, you can barely get a bunch of seniors today or you guys to strike against the rising prices of chicken fingers. I want you to imagine nationwide there's such organization and communication among and these the workers. That's the amazing thing, the communication in this era. Right. I mean, think about it. Now with social media, you can see things spring up like that. But the idea that they were that well organized and they knew that they had the power because of the industry that they were in, like you said, their industry affected every Everything, industry. Right. And the reason why the government decides to stick, step in is because ultimately they weigh on their uh, on their own. They think about the factors of, all right, 
we allow this to continue and our economy continues to get suffers, continues to suffer going forward in already difficult times, or we step in, we force them to go to work and things go back to the way they were unusual. That combined with the influence of the big businesses on our government made it that almost always the federal government or the state governments would side with the business owners. So what begins to happen with national strikes such as the Great Railroad Strike? A lot of unions begin to see the value in not only just unionizing on a state and local level, but kind of creating a national network to kind of effectively hit these key sectors to kind of help raise their wages across the country. So the National Labor Union will be the first attempt to organize all workers across the nation. It's quite like revolutionary if you think about it. Skilled and unskilled agricultural and industrial workers. This will be founded in 1866 and it'll have approximately 640,000 members by 1868. What's their platform? They simply want an eight-hour workday and high wages. They want equal rights for blacks and women. They want monetary fiscal policy reform from the banking industries, making banks, of course, more conducive to taking loans for poorer people. And of course, they want to kind of justify having worker cooperatives or unions. Of course, this National Labor Union will lose support after the Panic of 1873 because when economic crises happen, typically people stop to play nice with each other and do teamwork, and it's usually out for yourselves. I mean, mm. if you're that desperate, you're going to try to become a scab, so to speak, or break away from the union because you are so desperate to get a wage, you're going to do anything you can to get something. Yeah, because they're living in poverty, it's hard for them to sustain long situations where they're not receiving income. So a strike is great, but that's why the business owners can usually wait it out. And of course, unsuccessful strikes like the one in 1877 kind of shows and kind of puts a little warning out there to anyone who are joining these national unions that you might be blacklisted. You might be shot at by Pinkerton guards that are hired by these industries. You are going to be on the opposite side of the government in many aspects. So we have to understand that. And I also want you to take a really interesting uh, – I, I want you to interestingly note – Equal rights for blacks and women. I don't know if we've, we've discussed this in previous periods, but if you recall from the Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion, mm. there was a fear way, way back, even as far back as 1676, of this idea of a cooperation between indentured servants, white indentured servants, and black slaves. And because of that, the establishment of black codes were set up to keep these two races competing for the same piece of mm. pie. We are beginning to see some unions now identify this and try to push for more equality among the races, which yeah, is very interesting during its time period. Yeah, because one of the things that we remember from the previous time period is, you know, the people fighting against abolition in the North were often these factory business owners that were benefiting from the current status quo. So when they start to realize that they are actually working together for against the same enemy in this sense of the word, um, that's when they start to start to band together in these na labor movements. So after the nation, National Labor Union falls out of favor, one of the emergence um, labor unions is known as the Knights of Labor. And they're the second large national labor union. 1869, they start out as a secret society. Right? And union leader Terence V. Powderly makes the group very public in 1881 with their announcements to open up all membership to all workers, including blacks and women as well. Now, because they're secret, remember, they're afraid of getting the consequences that we've listed before. Mm -hmm. But Terence Powderly realized by making a secret society, you're just playing into the narrative that we might be kind of 
pushing and and starting some sort of something to be feared to be feared right some socialist revolution which of course he tried to do right so he opened up the membership to to have some transparency to all workers that included again blacks and women their platform was very similar they want worker cooperatives of course the abolition of child labor there's no reason to hire children of course there's a moral consideration for this but it's also an economic it's just another pool of competition Mm -hmm. that they can get rid of put these children in, in, in schools not on the workforce of course they call for the abolition of trusts and monopolies, which is different from the prior unions. Before the unions before were just trying to protect workers' rights. Now these Knights of Labors are going after and making a policy to kind of attack some of the industries that are hurting them. And of course, they're going to favor initially settling disputes through legal court arbitration rather than strikes. So interestingly enough, this union is trying to use the legal channels to get what they want. Yeah, as you said, they're looking at this from a macro level. How do we attack the systemic issues that are causing these inequalities? such as trust and monopolies, the unfair advantages that they have over the rest of the market. But this arbitration issue is something that's very important because in order them to garner support throughout the, um, the community and throughout the country is that unions were associated with violence and strikes are where those violence happened. So for them, public relations, part of this was, no, 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 we don't strike. We will meet you in the courts. We'll go through right. this legal channels. We're trying, we're much more civilized. Arbitration is the next standard. Now what arbitration is, is because it's legally binding, two parties agree, they shake hands as they walk into that room that whatever the court or the arbitrator, the judge decides is what is associated basically, they both come in, they speak their minds, they give their grievances, and then that judge says whatever it says, it is binding. So there needs to be kind of a, a trust among both parties. And one of the things that the Knights of Labor does is because they agree, hey, we won't strike as, and we won't shut down your workforce, we won't shut down your factories if you agree to meet us in this binding agreement. Now, we spent pretty much half the year understanding how hard it was for the federal government to keep all these like ragtag autonomous states from like doing their own thing. Now I want you to imagine this being applied to a union. Despite the fact that the, the Knights of Labor is a national union, it will be very loosely organized and powderly simply cannot really control all of the local units. So in many respects, despite the very public national platform that Terrence Powderly is going to espouse, some of these local units are going to really not follow all of these things and they're going to really vent their frustration to do some of these violent actions that we will discuss. And that's one of the problems. So 1886, we see their membership growing to near nearly three quarters of a million. And one of the major issues, as you mentioned, is when you grow to that, it's difficult to maintain control. And without that, you lack the discipline for everybody to stay on message. So one of the problems is in the area of Chicago, right? There's this situation where there's an organization uh, of this Knights of Labor that decide to have a meeting. Okay. So it's a local organization that basically says, you know what? We're going to have a Knights of Labor meeting tonight. And one of the things is that what happens is, is a, what we've understood is it becomes known as the Haymarket Riots. And what occurred was there were a group of anarchists that may have infiltrated their organization or just showed up that night to cause problems. And as we know, anarchists just like chaos. So one of the things that occurs in this Haymarket Riots is that there's a bomb that goes off in the middle of the um, rally, basically speaking for workers' rights. And one of the things that really ruined their reputation was the fact that when this bomb goes off, there's an immediate concern of who set it off. And there's ends up being violence between the police force in Chicago and the workers that were there to organize. No one really knows what's going on. And at the end of all the violence, at the end of all the violence, and at the end of the um, chaos, 
we end up having several police officers that have been killed either from the bomb or from the violence that occurs afterwards. So here we have front page news all throughout the country. The Haymarket riots completely shifts public union, excuse me, public opinion against unions going forward. And all that momentum that they had built up and their reputation that most of the country thought that they were what they were doing was justified gets thrown in the garbage because of one event that then becomes, look, this is what these people are about. They're cop killers. Look at these people. They'll do anything to get what they want, and it becomes dangerous. And when you associate violence, anarchy, and problems with these unions, it's almost impossible for them to negotiate for better wages and better conditions. So the, the Knights of Labor fizzles out shortly after the Haymarket riots, and they lose traction publicly. And it's shortly replaced with the efforts of this organization that still exists today as the American Federation of Labor. So the founder, Samuel Gompers, is going to kind of create a different model. Rather than kind of have a very loose and very egalitarian democratic allowing any type of worker into this union, he's going to make an association of 25 specific craft unions. It will be more concentrated on a narrower economic agenda, not so wide region and so egalitarian, as I mentioned before. Of course, it will promote higher wages and improved working conditions. However, Gompers will di- be directed skilled laborers to walk out until employers agree to negotiate a new contract through collective bargaining. Again, by 1901, the AFL will become the largest union in the country with one million members. But of course, this idea of entry into the union has become a problem. He, now Samuel Gompers is interested in skilled workers. He's interested in white skilled workers. He's interested in white male skilled workers. So because of that, you're going to have a little bit more of a homogenous unions. And because of that, it's not going to look as scary to some of these governmental entities or industrial leaders. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you see the the workers, who they are, they get left behind. Right. And that's one of the right. things, the unskilled, the factory workers, things start to stay the same for them. And then these other workers start to work their way closer to the middle class with the advantage of the skilled laborers having the advantage of the American Federation of Labor. So at the uh, last decade of the century, 1890s, we have the strike, uh, strike breaking becomes important because of the role the government plays in it. We talked about all the stakeholders within the economy. We talked about government's role is what is up for debate, and that's what politics often is about. And we talked about the invisible hand of the market. So what we see here with the Homestead Strike in 1892 is that we have a manager named Henry Clay Frick, who is uh, dealing with Carnegie's Homestead Steel Plant. And what he decides to do, because times are tough, is he wants to cut wages by nearly 20%. The workers immediately retaliate by going on strike. And what he decides to do is make sure that, well, if you're going to go on strike, we're going to lock you out. And basically, he uses private guards as strike breakers to to defeat the workers' walkout after five months. Because basically, if they strike... They're hoping that at a certain point they can go back. And you know that the, the workers that, that are working from paycheck to paycheck are not going to be able to last that long. And that's what usually happens. You have people break the straight lines, and eventually I can last a month, I can last two months, but I can't go much longer than that. So what often the business owners would do is by locking them out and hiring replacements, they basically say you're not as important as you thought you were. So as they're replaced, you can, unions decide to organize more than 10,000 workers, some armed to continue the strike. And as they do this, they take over the entire town. 
And what Frick does is send in 300 of these guards to handle the situation. Well, the guards are met with violence immediately. It's an all-day battle where we have weapons and exchanges of violence between the guards and the workers. There's seven guards and nine workers killed at the, at the conclusion of this. The guards end up surrendering to the workers. And we have a situation where uh, there is a sheriff that is unable to form a local militia. There are not enough people locally willing to put their lives on the line to help. So the state's governor, William Stone, calls for troops. And this is not something that's able to happen in that local community. So once he sends the overall state militia to put down the strike and protect the scrubs, um, this is something on their way to work. He basically gives them opportunities. Because if you're uh, if you're an organization that is striking, you're going to stand right in front of that front line. You're not going to let the entrance to the factory be available to the scabs that are there to take your jobs. So one of the things that happens when this, hap- uh, when this is going on is that uh, eventually you start to see public opinion going to maybe supporting the workers. But one of the things that happens is public opinion is on their side until the moment when an anarchist attempts to assassinate Frick. And once again, there's a point where the general public sees, we agree with you in terms of your general sentiments. We support that you should get higher wages, you get this. But people don't like when people resort to violence, uh, especially you know, this type of violence where important leadership people are assassinated or people are overthrown. It's the same thing when we talk about the abolition movement, right? What John Brown was the threat to the South, much more scary than any of the politicians in the moment, right? So that type of thought process is what leads to the strike breaking become initially government policy, and that continues with the Pullman strike. Now, after a while, the strikes kind of follow the similar trajectory. You got a bunch of people that like are striking, then the, the capital responds by having scrubs, they respond by lockouts, they respond by like arming Pinkerton guards, then responds by violence. Well, what's interesting about the Pullman strike in 1894, um, you will not only have a very similar trajectory, but it will give rise to a new party that we will discuss later in the progressive era. So Pullman, George Pullman will be a man that is responsible for creating sleeping cars um, for for the train. And his Pullman car workers will go on strike after he cuts wages, and he will fire the leaders of the workers' delegation, the unions, who came to bargain with him. So he's not even giving them the opportunity to even negotiate or do collective bargaining with him. He's firing all those union leaders, and he's cutting out the wages. Workers, of course, will be directed to lay down their tools by an emergent leader named Eugene V. Debs. He will be the leader of this American Railroad Union. The owners, of course, will find a very, very clever way to arrest the workers that are staging this boycott. They're going to put mail in the cars of the Pullman cars. And because there's mail, it's a federal service, they're going to argue to the president of, uh, of the United States, Grover Cleveland at the time, that he has a constitutional authority to send federal troops to force workers to end the boycott as it's now tampering with the federal service. This is, again, uh, a very clever way of involving the government that at this point was trying to take like a, uh, the federal government is trying to take a very neutral stance until they absolutely have to. They will not get involved. Of course, the federal court will issue an injunction to order the workers to stop. Workers, of course, will ignore the order, and as a result, Debs and the followers will be promptly arrested. Debs, of course, will appeal to the Supreme Court and challenge the constitutionality of this action, arguing that uh, the, the, the Pullman strike was about boycotting George Pullman, not the federal government. But in the case of In Ray Debs, which is the Supreme Court case in 1895, the court will upheld that the injunctions were, of course, permissible. And after six months in jail, Debs will conclude that more radical action will be needed to secure the rights for workers. So by 1900, Eugene V. Debs will help found what is now known as the American Socialist Party. And I like to bring this point very clearly that 
had Debs had his, his justice, even the courts or even in the, the boycott, we don't know if Debs would be pushed to more radical ideology. If the legal means of the system would work for you, then you don't need to rebel. You know what I mean? Right. And we will discuss Debs's trajectory in the political career in the progressive era later on. So one of the things we've been talking mostly about is the plight of the urban worker. And one of the important things to realize is that a large amount of our economy is still agricultural during this time period. So although there are a lot of issues in the cities, there are a lot of farm problems going on in the north, the south, and the west. So because of the um, issues here, we see that farming becomes increasingly commercialized at the expense of small farmers, which means you have these large industrial farms that are producing, mass producing these large cash crops, single cash crops, mostly in the north and west. You have farmers concentrating on that concept of cash crops, and you see smaller farmers that are sustenance farmers in the past and be able to compete in their local market and sell to their communities. They're being run out of town because they just can't keep up with the consumption level that is required to make a profit. So these consumers and farmers begin to procure food from stores in towns and their manufactured goods from Montgomery Ward or Searbucks Roebuck, they're not needing their local um, farms as much because, like we said, packaged food has changed the way. So this has changed the entire industry. And what we see is that producers and farmers begin to rely heavily on these large, expensive machinery. This, in turn, makes them more dependent on loans from the government, but it also requires that only if you have a certain amount of capital can you survive in this industry. So steam engines, cedars, reaper thresher combines, they're all essential to the future of farming. And if you're a low-level farmer that is reliant on old technology, you're going to be falling behind. So the falling prices on the, in their market can increase American, Argentinian, Canadian, Russian production all around the country with increased supply lowers the prices for commodities worldwide. And one of the things that we see is that this currency our currency did not grow with the surplus. So money is worth a lot more, but then we have deflation occurring. So the problem with the prices falling and deflation is this. What happens is once the prices fall and they're not making as much money, they're relying on loans from the bank or mortgages to increase their ability to stay afloat. Then once you owe a large amount of debt to the bank, you're now forced to produce more to be able to pay off that debt. That increases the supply, and now you're in this cycle where prices continue to fall because you've now just thrown more and more supply into that grand uh, market that we're dealing with. So this problem creates an issue where our farmers can't get anything right simply because of these they're victimized by these forces that are much larger than they are. So they can look and evaluate their local economies, but the larger world economy that is becoming increasingly important when it comes to these type of issues because of the interconnectivity of industrialization, this becomes an incredible problem for them. One of them being the fact that there are these cooperative monopolies that are being formed into these trusts. So what they do is because everyone, instead of being in competition with one another, they can artificially keep the prices very high because they're in agreement, and that hurts the farmers in the long run. The farmers especially do not have that the money to buy and purchase these goods that are priced artificially high. Wholesalers and retailers are going to take a cut take a cut before selling to farmers, which will add to the price of these manufactured goods. So now you're having the cooperative monopolies making the prices artificially high, then followed by wholesale and retailers that are distributing or or holding these products. And at the same time, you have railroads, you have warehouses where they're housing these things, but also elevators that are storing them as well. All these places need to charge high rates, high rates because everything is more expensive at this moment. 
Governments will tax the people based on property, but not for stocks and bonds. This is going to disproportionately affect farmers, and it's going to benefit people that are involved in Wall Street and, and banking. One, yeah, and one of the last things that the government decides that we're going to pass tariffs to protect all of these industries. But all of this ends up being at the expense of farmers, because of which, way back to the original uh, Shays Rebellion in the beginning of our country's history, we see that often the economic policies are not always looking at or reflective of what helps the farmer, and that often they're the ones having the heaviest tax burden. So this is where we start to see, just like the unions in the urban areas, we see a movement amongst the, the farmers to start to fight back. And it's known as the National Grange Movement. So in 1868, this man named Oliver H. Kelly organized a variety of different, um, he organized a movement, just like a labor movement, but a farmer's movement, okay? And they decide to become politically active in state and local governments, and they start to challenge the business practices through the courts. The first example of this is Munn versus Illinois. And they're challenging the fact that, the, and whether or not, the state or the federal government should have the right to regulate the railroad business because it travels with it from one state to another. But the Supreme Court upholds the right of the state to regulate it because they say, well, they can regulate once it enters in their borders and before it leaves their borders. And this moves further um, when we have the Wabash versus Illinois case in 1886. So because of the, the nature of the railroad industry, that it cuts across several state jurisdictions, this is going to be a case that will be found in 1886, and the Supreme Court case will decide that states cannot regulate interstate commerce. And because they can't interstate commerce, they can't necessarily fully regulate these railroad industries. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is going to lead to the question, well, if state governments can't rein in these railroad industries, the farmers are going to push for federal legislation. And they're going to be quite successful in pressuring Congress to pass the Interstate Commerce Act passed the same year, which will be forming the Interstate Commerce Commission, and it will be the first regulatory agency in the country. An agency is a team of individuals designed to investigate any type of corrupt or exploitive practices within a particular industry. In this case, they were designed to investigate the railroads. At this point, however, the railroad industries or the people in them were very, very effective in kind of keeping these people in the dark, giving them only certain choice pieces of information. It won't be until the progressive era where this Interstate Commerce Commission will have actual teeth when we talk about Theodore Roosevelt. And one of the things that happens is a lot of the farmers realize that the best option for us really is probably just to form cooperatives to try and decrease the dependency of these middlemen, all these other people that we're having to pay. So they all work in the same alliance, you could say. And this is what leads us to the Grange movement. All right. And the Grange movement is much like the labor movement in the urban areas. And this is where a series of farmers alliances start to form with the same goal of making their lives better. And they realize the way to change this is to change with government action. So this eventually becomes a populist movement, the People's Party, I guess you could say. And it becomes a populist party closer to the end of this century. And it all starts in, with this Ocala platform. And they meet in Ocala, Florida to discuss what they believe and what their policies will be and what they will push the government towards. So we mentioned earlier when we were looking at the bosses of the Senate that the direct election of the senators is not something that was um, commonplace during this time period. From the start of our country till, the, till presently in this era, 
the senators are elected by the state houses. So they're arguing that this led to corruption. And therefore, direct election of senators would be something that they call for in their platform, in addition to lower tariffs. Lower tariffs, going back to the very beginning of our country, we remember tariffs are argued against by the agricultural class because they believe it will only help the manufacturing classes in the urban areas. To offset the burden of the rising exorbitant property taxes, they suggested instead of gaining revenue through property taxes alone, that there would be a graduated income tax based on salary. Of course, this would help the farmers and start to put the onus and responsibility more on the people who make a substantial amount of money and are not being taxed at this time. Of course, they're also going to promote a new banking system, one in which will affect uh, and benefit the farmers. Uh, federal loans for storage, so they're going to advocate for the federal government to subsidize them so they can store their crops in waiting for these railroads to bring them to eastern markets. And they're going to advocate for a mixed metal currency of silver and gold to offset the deflation. You put more um, you put more weight behind um, or different metals attributed to the, the currency. It will kind of get rid of deflation. It won't be as valuable and it'll be easier to kind of buy equipment. It'll also be easier to get a mortgage. It'd also be easy to get a general loan from the banks. And the last thing that they really insisted on was that there needed to be federal regulation of the railroads because because the railroads are essential, you can think of it as electricity in today's time. It's like there's no way it becomes more of a staple or a um, something that everyone is re needs to be successful as a business. You can't then allow them to be exploitive in their practices. So with federal regulation, they believe that this would help level the playing field to make it more fair. Not that they won't be allowed to make a profit, but just it won't be at the expense of all these other industries, specifically exploiting the farmers um, regardless of all the other issues. So regardless of all of these things being on their platform, some of these did come into effect in the progressive era, others did not. But it had to be the fact that they pushed for them before any change would happen. Like all change we saw with the abolitionist movement and with women's rights going forward during this time period as well, without this happening and without the subsequent populist movement in this next generation of people at the conclusion of this time period as the 1900s approach, that would not have been possible, all right? So they had all these goals. They got many of them accomplished, not all, but without proposing them, without coming together and seeing what is the system that's going to help promote more of a equitable distribution of wealth throughout our country and throughout our economy. And keep in mind, despite the fact that these platforms are quite very well organized and they're, they're enumerated and enlisted, the populist movement was of the people. It was a highly grassroots platform that really never truly gained national traction. It gained a lot of seats in local and state uh, uh, positions. But what's interesting about these uh, platforms, it will be subsumed or absorbed by the Democratic Party platform. Um, that's important to know. And like the, when we talk about populism today, populism runs its gamuts from all walks of life. So all these other types of people that are coming from different states are gathering together to kind of generally kind of advocate for similar goals. Some of them are going to vent their frustrations into weird ways, some of which are going to vent and blame and, and use scapegoats of the banking industry. Some of them are going to turn to some anti-Semitic origins. Some of them are going to have some very interesting uh, financial weird conspiracies against them. So again, it is not as highly organized as the, uh, the, the two-party system that we've 
study throughout the year, but because of this, because of its attractive nature, because of its new refreshing platform, the Democratic Party will take on many of these key features in the platform by the, the 20th century. Yeah, and we'll see that, and we'll get into that in more details with the progressive era, but that's what you'll see is the reason why the two-party system is so uh, much of a um, consistent presence in our country's history is because anytime there is a third party like right. this that gains some traction, they get wait, there's an idea over there that they like, we believe that too. So right. you don't have to leave your party. Right. You just stay with us. Um, and that's one of the things is like once an idea gets popular to be a threat, they just say one of the parties adopted as their own. Correct. So this is the conclusion of the 6-1 uh, notes and uh, podcast to talk about the rise of industrial America and labor forces. So when we come back, we'll finish the rest of period six and take you all the way up to 1900 from a different perspective. Okay. Take care. See you next time.